we don't have the PA system going, I don't think, tonight, so um, I'll try to talk a little louder. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for the gift of Scripture, for the preservation of Scripture, and for the illumination of our hearts to Scripture by the Holy Spirit. We thank you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Tonight's going to be our last uh, for the for the uh, spring, and I wanted to um, go over some of the areas of sanctification. We wound up in the dimensions of sanctification last week, so let me uh, kind of review here. We started out with the phases of sanctification, and you know, I can see that doesn't work. Um, And the important thing about seeing the phases of sanctification primarily is the way of interpreting the scriptures. So when you come across texts of scripture that you really need to categorize these as to whether it's past, present or future. Um, So the past, we said the past phase of sanctification is the time that we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the preliminary work up to that point. So, that's referred to in many New Testament texts. So, you want to kind of fix um, that in your mind as a category. Then, there's present, and that refers to that class of text references having to do with the Christian life from the time we accept Christ until the time we die or the rapture, whichever occurs first. And there are texts and scriptures and commands that apply to that. And finally, there's the future. And of course, that is from the time we die or the time the rapture occurs to go in the presence of the Lord and into the eternal state. So, that's a convenient threefold breakdown uh, as a tool to categorize text when you read it. Then we dealt with the aim of sanctification And we pointed out that the aim of sanctification is not just removal of sin, not just grappling with sin. Those are aspects of sanctification that came in with the fall. But the Lord Jesus Christ was unfallen. He did not have a sin nature. And yet, Hebrews, remember the passage we went to, Hebrews says he had to be sanctified. Adam and Eve had to be sanctified prior to the fall. So, sanctification cannot just deal with a negative thing of putting away sin. It includes that now, but the aim of sanctification, we said, is the loyalty to God or loyalty or um, love of God. I use the word loyalty or integrity simply because L-O-V-E has got so vacuous today in our society, it's hard to use the word, have any meaning left. Then we dealt briefly with the means of sanctification. And there we dealt with two aspects on page 108 of the notes. The means of sanctification include law or revelation. So God has to give us the will, a knowledge of his will. Otherwise, if we don't know his will then there's not an issue of obedience or disobedience. So there's always an aspect of law, but law with a little L. 
not capital L, not the Mosaic law, but all law, whether it was law given to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the New Testament, whatever. We're using law in the sense of a synonym with revelation. And sanctification always deals with another means, and that is that apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit and the empowering Holy Spirit, then we don't want to do God's will. So there has to be the issue of motivation or motivational power, and that motivational power is given by the Holy Spirit. So those are the two means, and wherever you go in the Bible, there will always be those two means. God's always working. He's working to reveal His will to us, but then also He's working to aid us in carrying out that will. And uh, to see why motivational power is needed is to think of Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 7. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? The struggle Paul had in Romans chapter 8. One of the central passages there, it's an easy to remember one, the carnal mind is enmity with God. What does enmity mean? Carnal mind is enmity with God means it is at war with God. So, that's our natural nature, were it not also for God in His grace overcoming that. But left to ourselves as fallen beings, we are at enmity with God. That's our nature, inherited from Adam. Then last time, we got into the dimensions of sanctification. And this, again, is a useful categorization and will help you sort things out that you find in the Scripture and help you conceptualize uh, your own walk with the Lord. If you think of it in two dimensions, then the easy way to think of this is, at least for me it is, think of a graph, and if you're not that mathematically inclined, think of a plant growing or an animal growing or a child growing up. And... You, you can kind of graph the process of growth. It's not a straight line. It's got some dips in it and so on. And if you visualize that, long-term growth, there's a picture of it. So that's one dimension is the long-term. And that's growth concept that's built into, for example, the scripture texts that give qualifications for an elder or qualifications for a deacon. Now, if you look at that qualification list, one of the qualifications is what? The person can't be a novice. So, there's a qualification or a disqualification from leadership. There has to be some long-term growth. And that long-term growth is a prerequisite for being a leader in the church. The other is the either-or nature of our walk with the Lord, at any given time, we're either growing or we're kind of losing ground. There's no neutrality here. And so I want to come, come to that and, and finish that uh, where we started last time. Let's look at this either-or stage. Growth is pretty easy to visualize and conceptualize. 
the either-or-ness, people have problems with this. But let's go through some reasons why this is important. The first thing is that it's the implication of the imperative mood of every verb addressed to us. In other words, imperative verbs imply a binary response. That means it's either or. Not three ways, only two ways. If I say go to the store today, you either go to the store or you don't go to the store. If we say walk, we either walk or we don't walk. So implicit in imperative verbs is a binary response. It's unavoidable. It's built into the language. All right. Now let's go for a little bit another reason. That's the linguistic background. Conceptually, you're forced into this. Now, another reason for this, and let's turn to Galatians 5. There's a theological reason why it's either or. And it has to do with what we've already dealt with. No surprises here. That is that we are in our natures, apart from regeneration, at enmity with God. And so when you uh, turn to Galatians 5, 16 and 17, here's a good text that shows you this either orness. Look at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There's not three things there. There's just one thing. Either you walk by the Spirit, or you carry out the desires of the flesh. And verse 17 gives the theological reason for the either-orness. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, you don't have a choice here. It's either one or the other. And that's the theological reason. is because we have the sin nature and we have regeneration plus the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we operate in one sphere or the other. Well, then that means that it boils down to two things here. Do we have regeneration? and the indwelling Holy Spirit. How does that happen? That happens because we become a Christian. That happens because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, one way of entering into this is at the point of salvation. If, if we're not saved, the rest of this is just nonsense. So, salvation is the starting point. And you can think of it this way, the instant you were saved, you were in fellowship. Now, it might not last too long, but the point was that at that point, we were regenerated. What do we say the Holy Spirit did? R-I-B-S, regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, see, all that happened in an instant of time. All those 18 things that we worked into, and there's a lot more. Lewis Berry Chafer had 36 things or something like that in his systematic theology. <coughs> but... Salvation is where it starts. And the solution for not having it and becoming saved is the issue of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You don't get saved by anything that we do meritoriously. We're not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because we go to church. Not saved because we do some ritual. We are saved because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ at a point in time. So, here, this whole belief thing, this is a package deal, and it's minus human merit. So, human merit plays zero in becoming a Christian. Now, that's debated in the world because most world religions, in fact, all world religions apart from the Bible, hold the fact that that is not true. That can't be true, according to every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world demands that man approaches God on the basis of his own merits. And if man approaches God with his own merits, it becomes a balancing system. And God, if he judges like in Islam, then, then you'll have the tip scales because our good works outweigh our bad works. Somehow he takes the bad works and the sin works out here and he ignores them. Which, by the way, creates another theological problem. How can a just God forgive sin arbitrarily with no blood sacrifice? But in any case, the important point for tonight is that we don't become Christians because of some inherent human merit. Now, most Christians who have had some exposure to the scriptures understand that. That's not a problem. Where we have a problem is carrying it over to this, this, this issue of our walk with the Lord. And when we are out of fellowship, when we've disobeyed, how do we get back in? How is the relationship restored? Now, here's for some reason, people would otherwise understand this fine, no problem. When it comes to getting back in fellowship, they all of a sudden become religious in the bad sense. That now we've got to invoke the merit of penance. And that was done in many ways throughout church history. Um, we could have formal penance, uh, religious rituals that recognize penance, doing good works for penance. In evangelical circles, oftentimes it is associated with the fact that there has to be a certain profile of personality and emotion that accompanies this or the person really isn't sorry they sinned and so forth. So, unless they manifest a certain kind of emotions, then therefore, uh, they're, they're not being serious with the Lord. Now, the problem with doing that, in one sense, is a good motivation in the sense that what people are trying to say trying to say is that there's been a genuine confession of sin. But in trying to say it, they mess it up by introducing a certain predefined emotional manifestation that you have to do this, 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 and this, and all the rest of it. The problem with all that is that some people find that very easy to do, and some people don't, and it has to do with their own natural personality. And in fact, you can go to Scripture and see the emotional manifestation in Judas Iscariot. The Scriptures point this out, that that was a guy that was very sorry he did what he did. Yet Judas Iscariot isn't even saved. So the point is that emotions are not the 
sufficient manifestation of confession. So we're going to look at this, this step then. Well, just as over here, to become a Christian was belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, we receive God's grace by faith. So it is over here. It's the same principle. We receive God's grace by faith. Now, over here, when we become a Christian, we have to believe in the truthfulness of the gospel. And we can say, well, people sometimes show, um, you know, a response because my girlfriend took me to church or something and I had to impress her. Therefore, I went forward in the service to this and that or something else. And, uh, well, so-and-so prayed. Well, so-and-so prayed because his girlfriend was watching. And so that's the peer pressure situation. And it might not have been genuine at all because it might not have been because the person actually understood that Jesus Christ died for their sin, that they were sinners and in need of a Savior, and that that's truth, regardless of whether the girlfriend's there or not. Or it could be peer pressure-induced conversions. And peer pressure conversions are false conversions. Now, there can be a little peer pressure and still be a genuine conversion, not denying that. But there's a danger here that you can go through all the manifestation, be baptized, join a church, and do all the rest of it, and it's nothing but family pressure, peer pressure, group of Christians pressuring, or something else. And that doesn't come, though, from personal conviction in the heart. And this was a big issue back in the, in the early part of the 20th century when Lewis Ferry Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary, used to go evangelistically and speak. There was a lot of people that opposed him because he never had an altar call. And in those days, if you didn't have an altar call and get you know, everybody upset at the front of the church, uh, you, you, didn't, you weren't a real evangelist. And Dr. Chafer used to go around and his evangelism was a little different. His evangelism was he would teach who God is. He would teach what sin is. And then he'd say afterwards that if you want to talk with me about personal questions and that sort of thing, and you want to talk about person, see me after the service. And uh, many times he'd have dozens, hundreds of people after the service talking about it. And what he found was that it was a lot better because then people became Christians because they were genuinely led to the Lord by the Holy Spirit independently of some peer pressure thing. So, anyhow, point is that in order to believe, there has to be a conviction that something is true. And this is hard to do today. I mean, the problem today is we've got a big problem right here with this today. If we thought we had it bad in the 20s and 30s, We've got it really bad today because we live in a culture of what? Relativism. Oh, well, that's good for you. And this Buddhism is good for me. You know, we all have our tastes. It's whatever turns you on. Well, if somebody really believes that, I do not believe that without a repentance or a rethinking, that they, I'd be amazed that they could become a Christian. Because if they come to Christ with the attitude, well, this is good for me, but might not be good for them. Or, you know, I just feel this. This is just my personal conviction, but, you know, that's all it is, just personal conviction. That's not trust in Jesus Christ. 
Trusting in Jesus Christ means you trust in him as the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Before I became a Christian, that was the leading stumbling block in my life. That I didn't know John 14.6, but I knew the truth of John 14.6. Namely, that if I were to become a Christian, I would have to be convinced that Christianity was not an answer, but Christianity was the answer. And that went on for months in my life before I became a Christian. Now, I became a Christian with a really a poor gospel presentation. And, you know, I look back and wonder how I ever got saved. But the point was that I had one thing going for me. I realized that it was a matter of whether it was true or whether it was false, whether it was an opinion or whether it was an absolutely correct. And so that's the issue here. We believe that it is true. There is a conviction. Now, unfortunately, the very word conviction has been robbed of its power because it's been used as a synonym for emotions. So-and-so is convicted of their sin. And that's okay to say that. It's just the problem is that what comes up in the mind when the word is used is some sort of feeling thing and somebody's crying all over the place or something like that happens. That may happen. That's genuine. That may be a genuine. But it wasn't genuine. Judas Iscariot. So, and Paul warns us in Corinthians about suffering that is, is just fake. It's just phony stuff. So, the point here that we want to make is that minus human merit and there has to be positively a convincing. And I'm going to use the word convincing rather than convicting. I, I mean exactly the same thing. It's just that that word, I think, is not got so much religious stuff with it. Convincing. That you are convinced, Holy Spirit illuminated heart, you are convinced that this is true. And those have to be there. And what can't be there is thinking that it's my good works and my points with God that makes me acceptable to Him. What I have to understand, uh, I'm belaboring this point because we're going to get into confession here in a minute, and, I, and we want to make clear we understand the gospel first before we get over into this pseudo-penance thing. But let's diagram what's going on at salvation. Here is God. God is sovereign. God is righteous, He is just, He is love, He is omniscient, He is omnipotent, He's omnipresent, He's immutable, He's eternal. God has these attributes. Okay, this is who God is. The sinner is down here. The sinner, by virtue of his being identified with Adam has a problem right here with the righteousness and justice of God. And it doesn't make any difference what their personality is. doesn't make any difference how old they are. doesn't make any difference what race they are. doesn't make any difference what language group they belong to. The point still is God is righteous and in Adam we are fallen. So how does God resolve this issue? God resolves the issue of course, through the cross of Christ. And now, the sins of Adam, sins, personal sins that we committed, is put on the cross, and the righteousness and justice now look at the cross and then look at us so that we eventually will be seen in Christ because 
The righteousness of Christ comes through the cross and it is credited to us. But that righteousness is imputed righteousness. It is not our inherent righteousness. And that's why all that doctrine that we talked about, about the gospel and this and that, here's where the, the, the rubber meets the road. All that was nice theological theory, sounds like, but now watch what happens when you don't have the theory uh, or how to apply it the way it should be applied. The reason that God can now be free to send his love toward us beyond the cross and share the blessing is only because the cross handles his righteousness and justice. And so we have a pipeline from God, a, a sort of take a blessing, a grace pipeline built between God and us, but it is grounded at our end in the righteousness of Christ. It's not, it's not, it's like visualize a pipe, the receptacle for the pipe on our end of the pipe is the righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account. It's not our merit, it's not our human good works, it's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, we can be very thankful that that's the design of the gospel. Because as Luther found out, if you don't make that the end of the pipe, what do you, what do you have? Your own half-sin, half-mixed cauldron of good and bad and so on. And what happened with Luther was he realized that he could not be sure that he had the pipeline when it was resting on his merits, not Christ's merits. And as a, you know, as a monk, he went ahead and he started teaching the book of Romans. And he discovered Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6. And all of a sudden, wow, look at this. I am righteous because of Christ. And I can't begin to walk in righteousness in practice unless that righteousness is empowered by the Holy Spirit. What do we say the two means were? Will and motivational power. Well, how does the Holy Spirit from inside able to give us motivational power if he first isn't in us? And how can he be in us if we're a sinner in Adam? Well, he can't be. That's why regeneration has to precede all this. That's why justification has to precede all this. It's only after these things happen, at the time we trust in Christ, that this pipeline can be established. So, if we draw the diagram in another sense here now, in clearer way, we have the connection made because here we have the imputed righteousness of Christ and we've got the imputed righteousness, we've got God's absolute righteousness on the other end. So, as far as holiness goes, it's, a whole, it's an entity. There's not a, a discrepancy between one end of the pipe and the other end. That's why it's so necessary to share or be credited with Christ absolute righteousness. Otherwise, you have no assurance that this connection is, is being made. Alright. That's salvation. Now what happens when we break fellowship? Well, the pipeline isn't broken, but God has on his end of the line here, God can turn away as we can turn away from our children when they're disobedient. And God does the same thing. Disobedience he turns his face away. Why? Because he doesn't want that behavior in his children. So now, what, how do we reconcile that? We reconcile that by cleansing. We need to be cleansed down here 
so that there's a secondary cleansing here. In other words, the primary pipe is established, but secondarily, moment by moment, there has to be a cleansing for fellowship. Last time, we went through John 13, and I showed you the two cleansings there that a Jew would have understood from the temple uh, protocols. Remember a high priest? High priest was bathed upon initiation to the office, but then also before he came into the temple, he had to be washed. And some of the things, by the way, if, you, if we read, had time to read the book, Leviticus, Exodus, some of the things that a high priest had to be cleansed from doesn't look to us like sand. You know, one of the things he had to be cleansed from, if he was walking along and got exposed to a dead body, he was richly unclean. Now, you look at the ritually unclean aspects of Mosaic law and you see things like that. Well, gosh, you know, the guy couldn't help it. He just walked by some dead bodies or something. The point God is making is in the Mosaic law that all of those ritual uncleannesses, if you think about it, are coming into contact with the results of the fall. The death, the dead bodies and so forth. What are those? Those are the results of the fall. So what God forced the Old Testament people to do so they would understand how you get the pipeline cleaned out is that there has to be cleansing from the aspects of sin, whether we're aware of it or not. So let's go to 1 John 1.9, that classic New Testament passage on confession of sin. And that verse is structured very carefully so that we can see how this works. We saw this back three or four years ago when we went through David in Psalm 51, David's confession. But we want to look at, at this confession and restoration. In, in 1 John 1, 9, it says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And by the way, we, if we confess our sins, that's believers. First John is not written to a mixed group. It is written to believers. You can see this if you look where he talks in several places. Um, right in this chapter 2 that follows, he talks, he says, everybody I'm talking to is a Christian. So verse 9 is addressed to Christians. But Christians still need to confess sin as, as necessary. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. Notice he doesn't say faithful and loving. He says faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the point here is, is that this confession acts just the same way like salvation does. It makes use of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes back to the very heart of the gospel. That's why confession is so important. Biblical confession. It forces us in our hearts to go back to the time when we were saved. Exactly how we were saved, we came to the cross. How do we get cleansed? We come back to the cross. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, a few verses later, what he says. My little children, showing, by the way, these are believers, not a mixed group, 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And of course, not for ours only, but also the sins of the world. point he's making there is, it's not whether we feel this or feel that. The issue here is that Jesus Christ is an advocate with the Father on the basis of his completed work on the cross. We have an attorney, in other words, in the Father's throne room, and it's the Lord Jesus. And we said in Romans 8, remember one of the things that the Son does? He makes intercession for us. And we, what you say that intercession was? It was between the second personality and the first person of the Trinity. The Son to the Father. He makes intercession for us. Not, not the same intercession as the Holy Spirit makes in Romans 8, but the intercession the Son makes. The Son makes intercession for us. He have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, confession is centering on the cross not the merit of the act of confessing. Now, it's interesting that people have no trouble understanding this when it comes to becoming a Christian. They say, well, the act of believing the gospel is not meritorious. It's a non-meritorious thing. I reach out with the empty hands of faith and receive what God has done for me on the cross. No problem. Yet, when it comes to confession, we want to import and add on all these little extra things. We want to add on a certain profile of proper penance. And if we don't see that, somehow it's not genuine confession. Wait a minute. Go back to the gospel again. What breeds false confession? What breeds false uh, conversions? Peer pressures, false things. What is the characteristic of true belief in Jesus Christ? It's the genuine acknowledgement of the truthfulness of the gospel. Well then, what is the heart, the validity of true confession? Acknowledgement of sin. It means that we're convinced that there is sin, start with. can't confess something that you're not convinced of. We confess, homo legeo, the same idea of, of, in a courtroom. When somebody confesses to a crime, they have to be convinced that they have, they have committed a crime. They're not confessing the consequences. Oh, I feel bad because I did something bad. Confession is not confessing I feel bad. Confessing is not confessing, gee, I'm sorry I'm reaping all these bad consequences of a stupid thing I did. Now, often people do that, but that's not confessing. Confession centers on the fact that I have judicially transgressed the holiness of God. David put it, remember Psalm 51? What did he say? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, was David saying that there aren't bad consequences? David knew there was bad consequences. Psalm 38, Psalm 32 tells you about all about his bad consequences. So, David was perfectly clear about the bad consequences. But he wasn't confessing the bad consequences. He was confessing transgression. So we don't confess, uh, we'll put the negative sign here, we don't, we don't confess the consequences. We all know about consequences, the pain, the sorrow, the heartache that follows. That's not what we're confessing. 
we're confessing transgression of God's law. That's what we're confessing. Just as if we were in a courtroom and we confessed that we violated that ordinance. Or, take it to a, I mean, when a policeman stops you for speeding, what do they do? They're trained to bring conviction of sin, aren't they? Isn't that right? <laughs> they're, they're trained to have us admit that we were speeding. Not excuses. We have all excuses in the world, but were we speeding or weren't we? Period. Easy. One or the other. Well, it's the same thing here. Either we transgressed God or we didn't transgress God's will. It doesn't matter, well, well I had a, you know, the Twinkies defense, as some characters in, in the California law case did years ago. I had to shoot somebody because my blood sugar was low in the morning. Didn't have my Twinkies. And so they, the sarcasm is, referring to that stupid trial and the stupid decision that came out of it, they call that the Twinkies defense. Well, and God doesn't accept Twinkies defenses. It's always transgression of a law, and it's either or. So, the point here is, there's nothing meritorious in confession. The only thing about confession is that we are convinced of the truthfulness of a transgression. Now, the problem we all have is that we kind of know we've transgressed, but we really don't want to admit that we've transgressed. And we play a little game for a while until we feel so miserable and God, you know, spanks us enough and we get enough pain and sorrow. Well, all right, okay. And then you have to be careful, again, because we're not confessing the pain. We're not confessing the consequence. We're confessing the transgression. That's why in John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, what does it mean he's faithful? It means every time it operates the same way. God is always faithful to forgive when we meet his condition, and the condition is confession. We may be flat on our back. We may be walking around. We may be driving the car. We may be doing this. We may be doing that. We, you know, I don't know whether you can confess in dreams or not, but the point is that when we meet the condition, he is faithful, because he changes not, same yesterday and today, he is faithful to forgive us. But it also adds another adjective. Not only is God faithful to forgive, he is righteous to forgive. And that is nothing more than the Romans 3 truth. How is the, the cross is the way that God can be just or righteous and the justifier of him that believes. Because you see, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says we need an advocate. Why do we need an advocate? Because it's like a trial going on. And Satan comes, and we covered this back under the, um, you know, back a few months ago when we were in uh, chapter 1, and we dealt with the um, picture of Satan coming before God and accusing, in Zechariah, accusing the high priest Joshua of sin. And says, you have no right to bless him. And see, the point is that, going back to this grace pipeline, here's God, and we have a pipeline with us, and the grace pipeline has been established, rooted on this end in the imputed righteousness of Christ, rooted on this end in the righteousness of God. That pipeline is intact. But Satan's argument is that God can't bless that person 
because the person is dirty, the person is sin, the person is out of fellowship, the person is disobedient. And so the issue then is, well then, how can God bless that person? Well, God in his grace draws conviction out of the heart and once that conviction is drawn out of the heart that sin has happened, the confession comes to the cross, same place that salvation comes to, and says that I have transgressed and I'm leaning on the cross for forgiveness. If you think about it, confession is just enforced review of the gospel. It's, it's, the, it's the heart here that makes us go back to the gospel, go back to the gospel, go back to the gospel over and over and over until we die and we're resurrected because he wants to keep us going back to the gospel. Always the finished work of Christ, finished work of Christ, finished work of Christ, merits of Christ, merits of Christ. There's nothing meritorious in the act of confession itself. The merit is over here in the cross. And that's what cleans this thing out and keeps us connected. That's the idea in John 15 of abiding in Christ. Now, just the sap flows through the vine. Well, how do you get the circulation, the sap flowing through the vine? When you keep it clean. How do you clean out the pipe? God has to clean out the pipe. We can't do that. We didn't even put the pipe in place. God put the pipe in place. And there's nothing we can do to clean it. It's not a bath we can take. He has to do the cleansing. Notice what it says. Righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the word all there. It's not just cleansing for the particular sin that we may remember. Because for every sin we confess, there's probably 84 and a half that we've committed we still we don't, are unaware of. And what does it all say? A-L-L. If we confess our sin, can't confess what you don't know, so you confess what you do know. You confess I transgress this, 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 and this. Now, sometimes it helps to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 139, uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and so forth. Bring things to my awareness. And that's, that's a daring prayer because that usually is answered quickly, <laughs> pretty quickly, about bring things to remembrance where we've transgressed. And so... We confess that. We confess that. We confess that. But let's, let's be real. What we confess is a small amount of the total package of what we are and do. And so that's why the promise is so gracious in verse 9 that he goes ahead and confesses and, and cleanses from all unrighteousness, not just the sins we, we confess. Now, John also points out there are serious accompanying things here that we have to watch. One of them, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, some people take that to say, ooh, that means they're not a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. When John uses his word is not in us, he means it's not in us in the sense of actively controlling us, which gets us over into the language of Paul, the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is parallel, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which is parallel with another passage, Colossians chapter 3. So let's go to Colossians 3. We all know Ephesians 5, 18. Heard that many times. But we can sometimes misinterpret Ephesians 5, 18 
because it sounds a little like it's mystical and spooky, the filling of the Holy Spirit. What is that? So let's turn to Colossians 3. Remember the principle? Bible interpretation. If you don't understand something, and Paul's written it. You look in Paul's immediate letter. If you can't find it there, go to another Pauline epistle. Well, it turns out that if you diagram and outline Colossians and you diagram and outline Ephesians, they're very, very parallel. And in this section, they're almost identical except for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So in Colossians 3.16, you'll hold the place there and we'll turn compare this to Ephesians 5. So if you turn to Ephesians 5.18 with one hand, and we're going to flip between the two because I want you to notice the context of these two verses. And that's important because of the argument we're going to make here in a minute. Colossians 3.16 is one verse. Ephesians 5.18 is the other verse. And in Ephesians 5.18, look, look what the next verse says after Ephesians 5.18. It says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, giving thanks to the Father and so on, be subject one to another. All right, hold the place in Ephesians 5.18, flip over to Colossians 3. In verse 16, look at how it ends. Monishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It goes on about wives and husbands in verse 18 and 19. Flip back to Ephesians 5. And we all know that. Verse 22 is the wives, verse 25 is the husbands. So you can see that Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18 are analogs one of the other. Now, if they're analogous, then what does that tell us about how we can interpret the filling of the Holy Spirit? We may be a little more vague on what the filling of the Holy Spirit is, but in Colossians 3.16 it's pretty clear what the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you with all wisdom. There's the case where the Word of God is being received and operated upon and assimilated. Let it dwell in you richly. Well, John... And if you think about the Trinity, Ephesians 5.18 concentrates on the third person. Ephesians 3, uh, Colossians 3.16 concentrates on the second person. Now, in Ephesians 5.18, what does the filling of the Holy Spirit, what is it? Well, the filling of the Holy Spirit can be looked upon as an instrumental. And it's recently been argued, and I, I think this is the, the, a, a nice way of taking it. In the grammar, you can say that Ephesians 5.18 is being filled by means of the Spirit, but it's not stated anywhere in that passage what you're filled with. It's not being filled so much with the Spirit, it's being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. In other words, putting the two passages together, the filling of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit filling us, controlling us with the Word of God. It's not some mystical thing. Of course, obviously, there's, there's a mystery about it. We're not denying the mysteriousness of it. But the whole point is, it's not some spooky feeling thing. It's being filled 
the, let the Holy, the Word of God dwell in you richly. And how does that happen? By means of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's in Ephesians. And there's, a, there's another Pauline way of saying we're out of fellowship. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We anger the Holy Spirit. He's indwelling us. We're walking contrary to what He wants and we grieve Him. So when He's grieved or when He's quenched, that's just synonyms for being out of it, being disobedient. And how do we handle that? First John 1 John 1.9 says we confess. Now, He's not the only one that says it. Um, there are other passages of confession. Another one is a symptom, Paul's way of putting it, is 1 Corinthians 11. So why don't we go there, because this one's used every communion service. Pastors from all kinds of churches always cover this passage in communion. So let's turn there, because communion is one of these places where confession is expected. And see, see that, that, that dialogue that goes on in every communion? He says, um, verse 26, 27, verse 27 of, of 1 Corinthians 11, says, Therefore, whoever eats and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthy manner shall be guilty in body blood of the Lord. What the point of this passage is that we be in fellowship when we're having communion. So, verse 28 tells you in Pauline language, instead of Johannine language, here's Paul's language, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the blood and drink of the blood. So means in the manner of verse 27. What's the manner of verse 27? Don't do it in an unworthy manner. Or, do it in a worthy manner. Well, how do you do it in a worthy manner? Verse 28 says, examine yourselves and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and many are sleeping. Now, that's a very sobering verse. That shows you the extent. Remember we said that what the father can do, he can discipline. Father disciplines children. Well, here's three examples of three different kinds of discipline in verse 30. Just for eating and drinking, partaking of communion, what are we doing when we take communion? We're saying we abide in Christ. And Paul says, don't be a phony. If you're not abiding in Christ, don't take communion when you're saying communion means abiding in Christ. So, what he's saying is that if we don't judge or evaluate Evaluate. See, this is the process of examining and evaluating. That's how you arrive at conviction and hence confession. Evaluate. For this reason, many of you weak. That means, could mean mental weakness. It could mean just total passivity. Sickness, physical illness. Not all physical illness directly comes from unconfessed sin, but some of it does. I mean, where, you've been to a doctor that asks you, have you confessed your sin? Uh, you know, one of the first things that should be examined when we're sick. Is this from the Lord? Is this a discipline? All sickness is not just a trial. It can also be, yoo-hoo, hello, trying to get your attention. And so that can be true. So weak, sick, and a number sleep. 
That means God has killed believers. So, that, this passage is one of those passages that, remember I was talking about in the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Catholics jumped all over the Protestants because they said, look, this gospel of grace that you're preaching, this idea that salvation comes in one total package and you receive it all when you trust in Christ, that's too dangerous. Why? If people really believed in the gospel of grace, that would be a license to sin. And you, you, you have to keep people fearful of the righteousness of God. And so, the way the religious people tried to do that was taking away assurance of salvation. That's how you keep people afraid. Well, if I'm not assured of my salvation, how can I trust God to deal with my problems? Suppose I got this hangover sin. Now, come on. If you're telling me that I can't be assured of my salvation, how do I walk by faith? How do I have victory over it? I can't get victory over it because you're telling me that I can't be assured of salvation. You're telling me that I have not, I can't be assured of a personal, perfect relationship with God. And I'm telling you that if I don't have that assurance, I can't deal with a sin issue. And that's what the Protestants were. Well, the Catholics said that, oh, but you've got to keep people afraid. Well, you can keep people afraid without undercutting assurance of salvation. And verse 30 is how you do it. Verse 30 creates the respect with the holiness and justice of God. You mess around and you're going to get spanked as a Christian because God loves you. Hebrews chapter 12. He who eats and drinks drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. But verse 31, if we judged ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. Now what is the judging process? It's just another synonym for self-examination. Self-examination for what? Not an emotional self-examination. An examination over something objective. What does a judge do? A judge judges whether you conform to law or you don't conform to law. So what is self-judgment here? Do, am I doing what God tells me I'm supposed to do? Or am I being disobedient to what God tells me I'm supposed to do? It's that simple. And that judgment is the Pauline way of expressing the same truth. It's not two different truths here. This confession is implicit in Paul. Okay, so then we have restoration. Now we said, in David's case, we want to understand this for our own uh, rescue and recovery efforts, a few things about restoration that we want to understand. And that is that if we have a timeline and we're going along in time, we get out of fellowship and say we commit some horrendous sins and we, we create chaos, we create all kinds of bad consequences. You know, one that's easy to re- think about is you commit some crime, you go to jail. You find yourself now confessing your sin in the middle of a jail cell somewhere. Bad consequences. So, we come along here and somewhere along the line, uh, the light bulb turns on because God the Holy Spirit has said, hello, you know, have you seen what's happening here? Do you know, understand what the big picture is? And we confess our sins. So, let's say this is uh, maybe a month or two or something like that. 
and we're out of it and God disciplines us and finally we... So, at this point, we confess our sin. At that point, whether we are in jail, whether we're going to go into some bad situation, whether we're dying, whatever it is, the grace pipeline has been flushed clean. Independently of what society thinks, independently of what anybody else thinks, if we confess our sins, our relationship with God is restored 100%. 1 John 1, 9. And you can't allow some religious bullies to argue that, well, you never recover and so forth and this and that and all the rest of it. If that were true, then you never could deal with the consequences. Okay? So, on one side of the coin, at the point we confess, we're brought back into fellowship, not because of our penance, but because of what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not the warden, not society, not our pastor, not our priest. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. At that point, we are exercising our individual, personal, private priesthood as a believer in Jesus Christ to confess, just like the Old Testament priest did it. We do it. Every believer is a priest. Every believer has a priesthood that they, she, he, can exercise. So that brings us back into fellowship. Now, that does not mean that the bad consequences are going to be removed. That's David's situation. He confessed his sin, but the consequences are still going to be there. But the difference is how the consequences are handled. Now, from a standpoint of strength, from a standpoint of being in fellowship, we can have promises to claim. All things work together for good. Yes, even this mess. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Um, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let the request be made known unto God. And the peace of peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard and protect your hearts. So these are the tools that now become available to manage this mess that's been created. Now, God, in the way He designs our lives, if you think about this from a Christian perspective, let's let's apply the framework here and, and, and zoom back, not not zoom in. But let's zoom back and look at something. Something very interesting. Let's go back to Eden. Now, we've all gone through the framework and we know the events, God, creation, fall, flood, covenant. Let's go back to the fall. Let's go back to that moment when the human race fell in Eden. Before Adam and Eve fell, what was God's will for them? Remember? At creation, what did God tell Adam and Eve to do? He told them to subdue the earth, didn't he? In particular, he told Adam to till the ground of the garden, didn't he? Till it, take care of it, so on. Okay? After the fall, what was one of the consequences that impacted what they were supposed to do? What did he say he would do? What would the ground bring forth? Thorns and thistles. Now, did the thorns and thistles go away? after Adam and Eve became believers? No. Consequences remained. But, out of all the bad consequences of Adam's fall, the thorns, the thistles, and everything going wrong in creation, 
What did that demand then of Adam and Eve that wasn't demanded of them before the fall? Now they had to rely on God all the more. In particular, what did they have to rely upon God for after the fall they didn't have to rely upon God for before the fall? A solution to their sin problem. And the bad consequences of the fall led to their reliance upon God to provide Jesus Christ for their salvation. So, if you back off and see how bad consequences were handled at the, at the first sin ever committed, you can see that the bad consequences were not removed, but the bad consequences became a means for advancing spiritually. Adam and Eve, after the fall, in a certain way, were more advanced than they were before the fall. How? Because now they had revelation about a need for a Savior. They had that revelation before the fall? No. And so as a result of the fall, God took cursing and he turned it into a blessing. A blessing that meant that they would know God in a deeper way, be more acquainted with his grace, and so forth and so on and so forth. So, yes, God does not take away all the bad consequences. But what he does, he, is, he enables us to handle those bad consequences in a far different way than we would if we were continuing out of fellowship. And if we continue out of fellowship, he's going to add more bad consequences until finally he tells us it's time to check out. So this is the story of confession. That's the story of the either-or-ness. And we want to finish tonight with just a few minutes because we've covered this before. Page 109, The Enemies of Sanctification. Chapter 1, when we're dealing with the ascension of Christ, we went over all these. In fact, if you have notes uh, from that period, um, let me see if I can find the chart. There's, two, there's a table 3 on page 22 of the notes, and there's a table um, 2 on page 21. So, if you have those, page 21, page 22, I'll just recall, uh, remind you of, of those two charts. Because these two charts show Jesus Christ's victory over one of the three enemies of sanctification. The three enemies of sanctification, again, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the world system. It consists of the sinful structure of society. All societies have a sinful structure to them. Not everything in the society is sinful. Marriage isn't sinful, but there are perversions of these structures. We're seeing it today, all the perverted ideas of what is a family, what is marriage, what's a male and what's a female, duh. And so we have all this structure that's perverted. That's the world system. The flesh, we know that, we live with it every day. And Satan is the energizer of this whole thing. He's the one that puts all the voltage on the circuits. Now, the ultimate conflict is with him behind this thing. And on the chart on page 21 shows you how Jesus Christ, when he ascended to be at the Father's right hand, made a fiat accompli that Satan can no longer challenge. And that is that a member of the human race has ascended to the throne of God and therefore... Whereas man was created lower than the angels, man now is over the angels. 
Jesus Christ is above every principality and power, including Satan. Satan has lost as far as his position in creation goes. He can never, ever hope, no matter what he does, he can never hope to get that throne because it's occupied now. Sorry. Jesus Christ occupies the throne, will not leave the throne. Satan cannot get at the throne and he is cornered. And this is why there's a total conflict out there. And Sunday I went through, for those of you who weren't here, went through the war battle of Iwo Jima. And the battle of Iwo Jima was a very, very costly, bloody battle that America had to fight. And we lost casualties like we didn't lose in any other battle in the war. 7,000 men died, 19,000 were wounded in 36 days of fighting on Iwo Jima. And it all was because the emperor of Japan said, I will not surrender. I will fight to the last man. And that's what happened. After the Marines gained control of Iwo Jima, they heard grenades going off underground. It was the Japanese soldiers disemboweling themselves with their own hand grenades because they will not surrender to the Americans. Now, that's the kind of enemy we face with Satan. He is cornered. He can't get to the throne because Jesus Christ is on the throne, but he is not going to surrender. He is going to fight to the last and he's going to cause as many casualties and hurt Jesus, try to hurt him as much as he possibly can. He wants to draw blood. This is why in 1 Peter 5, it says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to increase the casualty count. He wants to inflict the maximum amount of pain. And he said, basically, he's saying to God, you're taking me to the lake of fire and I am going to take as many people with me as I can. I am going to disrupt your kingdom. I'm going to make it so full of sorrow and heartache that you'll think twice before you put me away. Now, that's the, that's the resolve of Satan. But chart number two, table number two, shows you why, gives you the theology of why his claim on the throne is negated. The chart on page 22 tells you why in the spiritual war, the enemies of sanctification, why Satan's claim on believers can be refuted. And that is that Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. Our connection with God is not a function of our human merit. And Satan can accuse us all he wants to about this sin, that sin, some other sin. Sorry, that's not the basis of our relationship with the Lord. The basis of our relationship with the Lord is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, period, over and out. And that's why Satan can be defeated, but only when that righteousness is claimed. That's why confession of sin is so important, because the act of confession is the act of authenticating Christ's finished work for us. And it's the only thing. Satan understands that. That's why Satan wants to deceive people. He wants us to do everything imaginable except confess our sins on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Because the moment we do that, it's like Martin Luther said in his hymn, Mighty Fortress, uh, is our God. And he said, one little word shall fell him. What's Luther talking about? Read Luther's biography and you find out what he's talking about. One little word shall fell him, said Luther, and he's talking about confessing sin through the finished work of Christ. 
Well, that finishes up our, our study this year, and we'll, in the fall, go in and finish out the one last remaining section, which is on the rapture of the church. Father, we thank you for your uh, faithfulness to us, the fact that you provide for our cleansing, the fact that we are to confess our sins, and that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We thank you that Satan is a defeated foe. We thank you that in spite of the ferocity, in spite of his determination to fight on to the last moment of history, to draw as much blood as he can, to, to try to retard, to resist, delay the coming of the kingdom of God, he ultimately is defeated because the high ground has already been captured by the ascended Lord Jesus. We thank you now in his name. Amen.